Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the wonderful Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch. Hello. Hi, Hello. Thank Gabby. you for calling me wonderful. Well, well you are. It's oh, a sort of showbiz like thing, when... isn't it? Could you be wonderful? Oh. Should that be your billing? The wonderful. In lights. <laughs> <laughs> the amazing, like the, like the great Gonzo. One of those kind of credits. <laughs> I'd like it to be more like the great Gonzo. <laughs> <laughs> Is it an odd thing, I suppose, because you are, like us, a backroom person. Yes. I suppose it feels odd to be called the wonderful. It is. <laughs> Usually I'm just her. <laughs> There's a potato in the corner. She writes jokes. <laughs> Ignore her. <laughs> that doesn't look as good in lights, does it? Yeah. A potato. <laughs> Throw her Haribo occasionally and <laughs> she might write something to make you sound funny. Because <laughs> you're, you're someone who does a, a job that a lot of us do, which is you work in writers' rooms making other people sound brilliant. Yes. We're trying to remember where we met you and I, we realised we couldn't remember. <laughs> this is something I get a lot. I get a lot of the time people say, have, have we met? And I say, maybe was I drunk? <laughs> was I being offensive in the Yorkshire Grey. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were it, was, it was a BBC thing. You were part of those rooms that we were all thrown into a lot yes. and certainly in the drinks afterwards. You were definitely on open door sketch shows and things yes. like that, but probably slightly after our time when we were doing open door sketch shows. Yeah, definitely after. Uh, I, I sold my first sketch in 2012, so I'm sort of slightly newer. Who, what, did, you, who did you sell it to? Uh, I sold it to um, uh, BBC's Newsjack. And, uh, I remember it. I can remember it because I I kept getting reminded of it. It was a sketch about when that French magazine um, took photos of Kate Middleton oh, like, through yes. a telescopic lens with yeah. a top off. And everyone was all like, oh, well, she's posh, so, yeah, she's due for a bit of humiliation. And I was like, well, no, I don't... <laughs> I don't. I don't give a shit about the royals. At best, they're just sort of there. At worst, they're Prince Andrew. <laughs> they exist on a scale. They exist. There's a spectrum of royals. But what I didn't like was the idea that if a woman's got enough money, then it's fine to sexually humiliate her. So yeah. I wrote a sketch that was very angry about how we're sort of suggesting that it's fine to any woman if she gets too big for her boots. Go, yeah. Well, we can sexually humiliate you because tits. Um, yeah. And I wrote this very. Very, very angry sketch and um, James Kettle he was uh, script editing Newsjack that week and he said that what he liked was that I was furious <laughs> they don't get many they get a lot of sketches that were like oh what would Mr Tony Blair say about this oh, right, look at the <laughs> yeah. week's news, let's have a, a sideways look at the week's news a furious look at the week's <laughs> yeah, news and just this, this angry angry woman going, ah, um, that they really liked um, and so Ed Morrish and Lindsay Fenn were doing a lot of the producing for Newsjack at that time and I caught their eye so they got me in to do more bits and bobs and I was doing quite well in Newsjack and then I got into the bursary. What made you send the sketch in? Because it's open door. What, what made yes. you think... Did you, had you always wanted to be a comedy writer? Yes. 
and had never had access. Was it a, yes, an access thing? It absolutely was. Um, and I only started sending uh, sketches then because I've been doing Twitter. I've been on Twitter for a couple of years at that point, and people seemed to like my jokes. And before that, I'd been just horribly. I'd like wanted to do comedy, but felt like I can't do this because the internet really wasn't. You know, when I wanted to be a comedy writer, it was an, as a young girl. It was the nineties, and everybody in comedy had gone to Oxbridge. Um, and most of them were blokes. And I just felt like, well, I'm going to Kent University and I can't really perform. I tried performing a little bit, but it really wasn't for me. And I thought, I'm not really, I'm not going to go to Edinburgh, am I? And this is, just isn't going to happen. And then the internet sort of became the internet. And um, it was possible if you weren't living in London, you weren't in that circle physically, it was possible to start sending sketches mm. and actually sell things. And um, and it kind of all went from there. So certainly um, writing stuff online really helped with my confidence and made me feel like I might be good enough to, to send in a sketch. It can be quite a good notepad, can't it, Twitter? Yes. Yeah. But it's also, it, it is a shop window. I know this for a lot of people. And one of the things we often said when we first started out, we hadn't been to Oxbridge and things, but we were trying to work out how to get in and we found the internet was an astonishing shop window for showing what you could do uh, and we always used to say that the secret to getting work was being the phrase we used was down the pub literally down mm-hmm. the pub and we originally meant literally down the pub you yeah. are you start hanging out you, you bump into people and there's comedy is a small village you bump into yeah. people they find out you're funny what was amazing about for all the fact that Twitter is a dog bin on fire it was an amazing way of being sort of down a big pub and people catching people's eye. Yes. Yeah, it, it really is, especially if you're a very anxious um, woman, <laughs> as I am, who doesn't live in London and I'm, I'm, I'm often too anxious to, to go to actual physical events. So that was really good. I could I could be in a metaphorical pub while still being small and anxious and also in the, my living room. And not full of peanuts. But there are barriers to it. You, you often talk about sort of barriers and access and things for getting into comedy. And some of those barriers and access are historic or to do with prejudice and things. And some of them just to do with can you get down to the events and the places. It used to be, weekending used to be used to turn up for a writer's meeting, which meant that if you had small children, you couldn't go. Mm-hmm. If you were disabled, you couldn't go. If you lived too far away from London, you wouldn't pay for a like 50 quid train ticket to come somewhere where you would get 20 quid for a yes. sketch. And the internet and the fact that Newsjack and Recorded for Training Purposes and all those open door sketch shows would accept emails yes. rather than you turning up on face-to-face and pitching, mm-hmm. I think changed the intake for comedy enormously. It has. They still have to get over that a lot, They've still got a lot after the first level. So you've got your first step of news, Jack, where that barrier has been taken away. After that, that barrier still exists. Um, I've found this problematic with other jobs. I think they still need to get out of the idea that everybody either is completely making money out of writing or has a job that will just let them leave for, <laughs> for four hours. For a meeting. For a meeting, just to drop by. Just drop by. We're in central London. Just pop by. As you, you've got kids and you don't live in London. It's like, OK, I will um, arrange childcare. Um, I will pay £50 for a train ticket, even though I'm in Kent, um, and just pop by to central London for a 50-minute chat with no particular work, which per- I could have done over the internet. With, also, with a person on salary who yes. is trying to fill their day. Yes. And so I met a lot of new writers and you went, yeah, who got paid? Yeah. It's still not fixed, that. It's still not fixed. And it's very easily fixed if you're listening and you're in comedy and you want to, if you're a decision maker in comedy and you really actually genuinely want to widen your scope a little bit. Um, they've got this thing these days called Skype. <laughs> There's lots of different versions of it. There's Google Hangouts. There's lots of different video, video chats that you can do online. And if you, it's free to use. It's amazing. Um, and you can, but just by utilising that, massively diversify the, uh, the, the people that you're working with. Very true. Yeah. I'm really sorry we made you come to London. I feel awful <laughs> No, it's fine. <laughs> come on, day, day out west. Just pop, <laughs> just come to I just pop in by. No, pop you're paying my expenses. A lot of the time people don't even do that. Well, yeah, that's, yes, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it's reasonable. you leave your house. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever thought of asking the person whether they'd like to pop by to Kent? <laughs> <laughs> pop by is a nice coffee shop. Yeah, you know. I have done. Funnily now, enough, they're not interested. <laughs> 
you're now an author. I am an author. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> How exciting. That means your name's on the front. It is, yeah. Well, sometimes my name's... Has my name ever been on the front before? No, it's, it's at the end, isn't it? Yeah. And also, yeah. here's the big star, the one that I'm also going to be yeah. But yeah, no, my name's on the front. It's the only name on. That's exciting. Bloody marvellous. How did you get the book away? Um, it was a rejected script. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, which I wrote for uh, the writer's room, actually got in touch with me because I was trying to do more children's writing. So, hey, we've got this uh, competition. Um, you should definitely go for it. And I did. And then they said no. <laughs> <laughs> Straight away, as BBC Writers Group is want to do. It was um, a pitch and I wrote a, a little pilot script. And by the time the um, Writers Room turned it down flat, I loved it so much that I wanted to do something else with it. And at the time, I was doing a lot of looking at the format that I was pitching things in and trying to diversify my formats. Yeah. Um, Very sensible. So with, in this case, I thought this could work in prose. I'm just going to try writing out the pilot script as a prose. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time I'd written that out, I was like, this feels like the first fifth of a book. I'm going to write the next episode yeah. as, a, as a carrying on yeah. from that. So I wrote what would have been like the, the first three episodes, which turned into half a book. And I then emailed my agent and said, how do I sell a book? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, it's your first one, so maybe write the first half the book. I said, all right, I've written the first half the book. There we go. And it, Twitter, again, I was just on there. I follow a lot of like other writers and um, one person had retweeted a call out from a newish publishing company called Farago who wanted specifically genre comedies which was really exciting um genre comedies that could be a series and I had a genre comedy and I wanted it to be a trilogy so that was just right place just saw a tweet for the right place at the right time and and she liked it and she particularly wanted more female writers anyway and was excited that a a female writer had written um, feminist comedy um, fantasy and yeah we were away that also is the the awful thing you find out again and again you're talking about access and availability Mm -hmm. the the, the big the same as the big problem that happens when you get your first sketch accepted and you go I'm now I'm a writer I'm a paid writer with the credit and then the next thing is to, to find out that you don't have enough money. You can't yeah. be paid for this. You need to keep a day job up. And the awful thing you find out again and again when people say, well, how, how, do you, how do you get this thing away? And the answer is always, I had to just write it. Yeah. And that's the biggest barrier is you go, well, there are certain people for whom it's not a yes. problem to just write it. Yeah. I went to my friends, talked to a literary agent once ages ago and said, I've got an idea for a children's book. And they said, well, you've just got to go off and write it. And the, always, the first hurdle is they can always say, well, have you finished it? Mm-hmm. Are you halfway through it? And you go, well, that means I've got to give six months, three months over. I talked to even to people who are established. I was talking to Rufus Jones last week about Home. And I said, it's such a good show. I said, it's so satisfying. And he'd been doing ages trying to get things away. And he said, I just had to write it. And I went, really? They didn't, the subject matter, they didn't just give you a development money or anything. He said, no, I just needed to be lucky enough to have just done a job that had enough money in it that I could take a couple of months off and write episode one and the breakdown for the rest of the series. By the time someone saw that, it was already there. The big thing with that, whether you're doing a comedy show or a book or something, is people don't then have to use their imagination. Yeah. They can see it and go, oh, that's what it is. Yeah. And it also means, I think, that you end up more in control of it. Yeah. Because they go, oh, that's what you're trying to do, yeah. rather than if you're trying to get development money and you've got like a pitch document, mm. it changes and you lose control of it straight away. Yeah. But I think that it's it's remarkable how many times people say, for a big project that they get away with, it's really their heart and soul. It turns out to have not been done for demand. It turns to have been done in your spare time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with this one, it was just, I was doing it between jobs. If I was like, oh, I don't have any bookings for the next three days, I'm just going to sit and write my book all day. And it was, it's one that I used to write as a hobby. That used to be my hobby. I used to write fan fiction, um, which I loved. I loved writing fan fiction. Who did you write fan fiction for? Oh, God. Which, which, which genres? <laughs> which, which books did what, you do? What would you admit to? <laughs> um, I have done a piece of fan fiction that became so famous that it's got its own TV <laughs> tropes page. No. What? It's um, Star Trek: The Next Generation. I rewrote the whole of Star Trek: The Next Generation from the from the first series to the <laughs> final movie, but as if Tasha Yar had lived. What? So I rewrote the whole thing. It's called Roller Coaster, and then I wrote a sequel. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you don't have a problem with writing speculatively just in case? No. No, fine. No, I write, I just, I wrote that for fun over several years. It's like 200,000 words long. What? That's astonishing. <laughs> that, that's the first thing I've heard that's beat for niche fan fiction. Our friend Vicky Thomas, who's a TV producer, wrote um, Some Mothers Do Have Them slash fiction. Oh, my God. Called the- Frank and Betty's First Night, which is an erotic Frank Spencer thing, which I, I, that was that was before I heard yours, the biggest dedication to the art I'd heard. <laughs> oh, I've written some amazing slash fiction. Oh, my God. Right. Okay. <laughs> I've got one piece of slash fiction that um, I'm so proud of. I've, re- I've read it out at a friend's slash night twice, <laughs> which is um, BBC Sherlock, um, Mornington Crescent Porn. What? <laughs> <laughs> that, okay. Right, uh, it's a game of Mornington Crescent that's played as buggery is going on. <laughs> that culminates in Mornington Crescent being shouted at the moment of ejaculation. <laughs> Now, weirdly, if you go in and pitch that, they won't give you the development money for that. That's something you have oh, to do for come yourself. Come on, come on, BBC. Come on. It can't be any sillier than season four. <laughs> How did we end up here? <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about writing for fun. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, which you, I used to you do. do need to do. You do need to, I think that's it. And as well, the one of the frightening things that comes out is that very often when you when you go back to writing for fun after writing for hire, it reminds you why you write in the first place. Yeah. And it's scary sometimes that because you want to be professional. Yeah. That sometimes I think the industry kind of relies on knowing that secretly writers, if they don't look after them, will eventually just produce <laughs> the stuff naturally yeah. by the action of the wind and the rain. I wrote that book for fun. I wrote it because I had no other bookings. In the time that I had no other bookings on, I, I, it was a story I desperately wanted to tell. Same with my with my podcast. It was a rejected pitch, um, and by the time it got rejected, I loved the characters. So I went, "Fuck it, I'll make it." I yeah, just put right. on a posh voice. <laughs> great, <laughs> and it's very often as well. You're, you're talking about your your first sketch that you sold mm. was because you had something to get so, up your chest yeah. and something to say. And I think that sometimes. As a hack writer, you do have to remember that you're supposed to be getting something across. Yeah. That because you can just be hard to do something because it's a bee in someone else's bonnet. Yeah. And it's a real pleasure to go back and go. Actually, yeah, I wanted to write this. Mm-hmm. And to, people always say to not ask permission yeah. is incredibly revolutionary. And your job as a comedy writer, as a, a working comedy writer, is very often to do stuff to order yeah. for other people, for stars, for, for productions. But it's quite nice to remember that actually you have something to say. Yeah, and sometimes I do get to. Sometimes I do get to do that. Um, I did a podcast uh, for Audible, Sue Perkins, um, Earpedia, where we were allowed to just go off on these flights of whimsy. So we had ten minutes to fill on like a different animal or a different plant. We were just sort of given a, a sheet of facts and just go, there you go, write ten minutes of comedy that get these facts across. And so I was doing that between... I was quite busy at the time I was doing that, so I was doing a lot of them tired, um, which means... Tired writing. And I wrote one about a platypus, about the platypus, <laughs> that ended up being a, at least a quarter of it is just this filthy runner sketch about a sailor who keeps trying to have sex with all the different animals in the sea (laughs) and claiming that they're mermaids. (laughs) Because he's so lonely and he doesn't realise that the captain wants wants an affair with him. Uh, But the captain's never asked. (laughs) He finally gets the captain to have sex with him as long as he wears a a clamshell bra. (laughs) We were talking about this recently with uh, regard to the joy of... um, of any book or any project or any TV show where the money isn't quite enough mm. that they go, Jess, we need this filled. Yep. Can you just fill this? Yep. And oddly, when you do that, we do a lot of tie-in books and things like that. And yeah. weirdly, as long as you have done a day's work and at the end of it, the blank pages are full, everyone is delighted. Yeah. And oddly, when you do that, you get the stuff that's bubbled up from inside you that's often passionate and honest and real. But it's <laughs> oddly, yeah, with, with no time to do it, sometimes you're very expressive. The best of you comes out. Yeah, I think so. Now, what we've got to do now as a writing exercise is get from platypus porn to your choice to talk about today. Because, uh, crazy, <laughs> on, no, can you do it? Can you do I can it? do it, I can do it. Do you want a drum roll? No. <laughs> <laughs> that puts way too much pressure on me. Okay, so Crazy Its Girlfriend is something that I love because, and I chose it because it's adds huge flights of whimsy to something that's very serious. Yes, a very serious true. issue. But also it's, it, it feels very deeply personal 
Yeah. It feels very deeply personal and I don't know whether it is autobiographical or not, but Rebecca Bunch, obviously her name is very similar to yeah. to the creator, Rachel Bloom. Yes, I've got that the wrong way around. And it feels very personal, uh, but also there are these huge flights of fancy that really lift it. Yes. That is where facts about platypuses that include <laughs> mermaid porn is... It's probably been coloured, actually, by me watching uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and me watching a woman um, talking about serious mental illness while having a, a huge song and dance routine where she's a Marilyn Monroe character who's so stupid she doesn't know what a triangle is. Yeah. <laughs> One day I was crying a lot and so I decided to move to West Covina, California. Brand new pals and new career. It happens to be where Josh lives, but that's not why I'm here. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. What? No, I'm not. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. That's a sexist term. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. Can you guys stop singing for just a second? She's so broken inside. The situation's a lot more nuanced than that. C-R-A-Z-Y. Okay, we get it. Crazy ex-girlfriend. It's a great collision, isn't it? I was looking up. I wonder how Wikipedia described it. And it says, you know, musical comedy, hmm. blah, blah, blah. One of the terms by which it describes it is cringe comedy. No. Yeah. It's not that at all, it's is it? It's not cringy at all. That, it, that was a genre that everyone got into, and I don't and think I it's that. And I hate cringe comedy. I can't watch it. Yeah. Um, it, this is celebratory, isn't it? It's absolutely celebratory. It's effervescent. It, there's nothing cringy about it at all. There's a lot of, there's a lot of situations that could be treated as cringe comedy, but are not treated because the characters aren't really humiliated. There's even no. moments where there are humiliations for them where they are defended by the other characters and they're helped out by the other characters. Nobody's left alone and ashamed. Yeah. It's a very, very safe thing. I, I wrote that down as one of the scenes in the... We are talking about the... You said, let's look at the pilot, because the pilot is astonishing. Mm. Uh, focus on that as, a, as a, a way of getting into this. There's a scene where she meets Greg, who's going to be yes. her buddy stroke possible... The, the, other, the, other, the other guy, the, yeah. the setting up the love triangle of the airheads, himbo versus the snarky guy. Yeah, he's the yeah. Janine Garofalo. He's, in yeah. this. he's the guy who might be the other, the, the sarky boyfriend thing. When she meets him, he's sarky and edgy and sort of a bit, a bit, there's a darkness to it. Yeah. And then the moment they go on their first date and they end up kissing, he says something like, Hey, 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 hey. I, uh, I, can't, I can't believe I'm doing this because I, I really, really need this. But, um, I don't know much, but what I do know is it's not good to hook up with a crying girl. No, I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I'm not crying. I'm not crying. I'm fine. No, just... you're not. Hey, whatever it is, I really don't think you should be here. Oh, he's safe. Yeah. Nothing bad will happen to this poor woman because even the meanest guy she's met, the guy who could break her heart, yeah. has said, "Don't worry, I've got a." core of decency mm. and I'm on your side. Yes. And they've only just met. In a cringe comedy, she'd fall in with the bad guy and she'd have her heart broken again. Yeah. But this whole show says, let's not break this woman again. Yes, absolutely. That's kind of the first moment, isn't it, in the series where you realise, OK, there's something much more serious is going to be underneath all this. Because until then, you've basically got a girl making an impulsive decision to move from New York to... West Covina. West Covina. West Covina. West Covina. California. Uh, which, which is beautiful because she, she arrives in West Covina and suddenly she's been glammed up. She's got yes. loads of makeup on and she steps out of the cabin. It's the most ordinary fucking town you've ever seen. It's but just this it's concrete so hellhole. She's dropped off outside a sex shop. Yes. You know? <laughs> she, she has seen on the street a guy she probably had a fumbling grope yeah. with once on summer camp in the street at the moment when her career is about to explode mm -hmm. as a high-flying lawyer in Manhattan and she sees him and suddenly she snaps and the next thing you know she's followed him to where he is and the way the audience are dragged into that and you're talking about it's not cringe comedy there would be a version of this where you'd go ha 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 she is it's called crazy ex-girlfriend you go ha 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 she's crazy mm. and the audience knows this is a really bad idea mm. yeah. but at no point are you meant to go ha ha this is a really bad idea you're meant to go I think I've done stupid things like that. yeah yeah. It's incredible, yeah, yeah. and I don't know how it makes it sympathetic, but it isn't cringe comedy because no one is sneering at her. Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting that her her decision that she makes because there's so many layers to it. First of all, I rewatched I rewatched it the other the other night, and um, 
Nobody ever makes a mention again of the fact it's probably not Josh that sets off her. It, she's basically having a breakdown. It's, yes. it's, she, it's, she's having a mental breakdown. And it, it's not technically Josh that starts it. It's an advert for butter. Yes. Yes. She sees the same <laughs> advert for butter three times, which asks the question, when's the last time you were truly happy? And the last time she can think of that she was truly happy wasn't even particularly Josh. It was the summer camp where she got to sing one line. She got to sing the words, she's in love. That's her first line in the show. She's in the back, she's in the chorus of a really crap Amdram production of South Pacific that she's doing on camp. And she got to sing the line, she's in love. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love. She's in love, I'm in love with a wonderful girl. Um, and then in the next scene where you see her, she's referring to it as her solo. When I sing my solo, I feel like an impalpable connection with the audience, which is <laughs> yeah. adorable. Yes. That is the last time she was truly happy when she was a teenager. It suggests that the next year she's made to go and do a camp that's training her up to be a lawyer. So there's no pressure on her to be a lawyer. There's no pressure on her from her, her broken home. Uh, there's no pressures on her at all. She's just There's a lot of mum in the first 10, 15 minutes. The mum saying, I expect this of you. Yeah. And all the expectations of her family. I mean, a, a real classic thing where the mum is unseen, she's just over the phone, yeah. and you get the feeling that she's had this happy summer camp where she's been allowed to be in musical theatre. Yeah. She just never says, I've always wanted to be in musical theatre. It's left for you to work yes. out. And by the fact that there's loads of musical yeah. numbers in the show that yeah. she has made. And then the next thing you see is the office she's in as a successful lawyer, which is cold and grey. It looks like Fifty Shades of Grey. It's a cold... Awful so corporate cool. office. She's lost in it. And her and clothes. Her clothes. I, I keep thinking about clothes. her clothes because Shoes. she has a costume change. When you say she's all glammed mm. up, she has a co a very subtle costume change. In the first scene where she's having her breakdown, she's in this very particular, very tight blue dress with a tight black jacket and horrible, really painful looking shoes. Yeah. And then when she goes to West Covina, it's the same shade of blue but the dress has been softened yeah. um, and yeah. she, she doesn't the have the jacket off, off. and I, something else I noticed because I was, I was going over the, all the songs <laughs> that I love um, in her rap battle with her old nemesis Audra Levine who is basically her but her without the breakdown Audra is wearing the breakdown wow. outfit she's wearing the blue dress and the black jacket she's wearing exactly the same costume as the costume that um, really, she's wearing when she really has her breakdown. That it's a breakdown outfit. And you see her yeah. in there's a brilliantly framed shot, it's a beautifully shot, there's a brilliantly framed shot where she's just in a back alley in Manhattan with the... With the pills. With the pills. And she's mm. going, an emergency break glass, an emergency break glass. This is great. I'm so happy. Mom's going to be so happy. This is what happy feels like. Happily just feels great and amazing. This is definitely what happy feels like. What's wrong with you? This is what happy feels like. Okay, okay. Sorry. Okay. All right. In case of emergency, in case of emergency... And she fumbles the pills and they fall into the gutter. But you just see her right hand side of the frame, so dominant part of the frame, but she's tiny. Manhattan is towering above her yeah. and she is a small black sort of bird, a broken yeah. bird in the gutter. <sighs> oh God, I don't pray to you because I believe in science, but I don't know what to do. Give me guidance. She's not all right. Mm. And so when she makes a an impulsive mad decision to, and we know this guy isn't, it possibly isn't the one, yeah. might, I don't know, but it's not a sensible decision. But she makes a decision because why would she stay? Yes. And it's really clear. You go, I know this is the wrong decision, but possibly... You need to do something, mm. and she's but probably just, not this. She's just been offered partner by the law yeah. firm. Yeah. There's a lovely line. Sometimes time tells you it's time to move on to other moments in time. <laughs> I think this is a time. <laughs> and then she leaves the meeting by walking out of the room backwards <laughs> in heels. <laughs> Guys, it's brilliant. It's such a great exit that she does. She doesn't know what, what mistake she's made. She thinks yeah. it's Josh. Yeah. But you've seen, there's been a flashback, you've seen her with Josh, and it wasn't good. There's the brilliant line where she goes, I love you. And he goes, thank you. <laughs> and he, well, that's not a mutual thing. But I think what excited me about the opening of this is because he is always framed 
in dry ice or in beautiful yes. light. There's a bit where he waves his hand and his hand is in sunlight, mm. as he if even his like, wave is gorgeous. He appears like an angel, he doesn't does. he? He does, really was... doesn't. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of framing. It's, it's very, very female gaze. Um, there's a lot of framing. I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's an attractive fella, um, yep. Vincent Rodriguez III, yep. um, and it's all about, look at this, Gorgeous. He's a front of a Mills and Boone kind of that kind of a fantasy film. And he's such a blank. The character's wonderfully blank <laughs> as well. She's projected everything onto he him. He is such he is such a blank. Because <laughs> he's since everyone else in the show is broken as well. And he's yeah. broken because he's in an arrested development. He is permanently 15 because that's it uh, that's an interesting thing. I think she's trying to to bring back her teens and he is he happens to also still be mentally 15. Well, yes. he's a skateboarder. She says, oh, he's, yeah. he's, he skates on, on the boards. And yeah. I, that's always a bit of a tag to say someone has not moved out of the basement. They're yeah. still, they've got child's toys. He's on a toy. You project onto him, you'd hope he's an innocent puppy kind of a figure. Yes. Um, and he's not the answer. And she's going to give everything up for him. But the brilliant thing, which I'm sure is one of the reasons the show works, is the rules of romance and of rom-coms... Yeah mean that this is always how it works. You yes. always see someone across a room and you don't know anything about them, but we as an audience are used to and primed to go, they're attractive, yep. they're yep. up to the same age, they're both sexually available. Russell T. Davis called it, there's a gravity. People fall together. You don't need to write long love scenes. You just need to put two people of roughly the same age in a frame mm -hmm. and the audience will ship them. They will assume they will fall in love. Yeah. And they do this, but you know as an audience member of this because it's called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that they mustn't or won't or this is probably a bad idea. But then you realise the thousands of times you've watched Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn have absolutely fuck all in common and have assumed, well, I hope they fall in love. You have no judgement as an audience member. And you've also got the voice of Paula, yes. who comes in and is the one who is pushing uh, Rebecca to, to do this because Paula uh, is also broken and she is so bored and unhappy in her family life and she is she has descended into rom-coms what you did for love for true love the sacrifices the, the, the money that you walked away from that you oh god no, no 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 you're not crazy and you're not stupid you know what you are you're brave and i wish that i had been as brave when i was your age she, the, she's carrying with her to demonstrate how this works in one of the first two episodes. She's carrying like a celebrity dating magazine and sort yes. of saying, you've got to be Taylor Swift. She's got to be Katy Perry. Got different... She's, yes. she's got these formats for relationships, for female rivalries, for romance that she's learned from magazines and rom-coms and she, she wants to impose. It's imprinted on her. It's, it's so interesting <laughs> in the, when they had the reprise of Vascovina, the, 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 the third song, when Rebecca realises that, that Paula isn't an antagonist and we realise that Paula isn't an antagonist, she's an ally. Or certainly she's, she turns out to be a toxic ally, but they still love each other very, very much. She's called, in the title, she's called The Bestie. She's labelled... Yes. So she's moved to a place where she doesn't know anyone apart from Josh and yeah. this is going to be her best friend, best friend, the woman in the office who starts out looking like she's the worst person in yes. the world. <laughs> she's very, very, very nosy. Um, but she's, she's a brilliant she, actor, isn't oh, she? Oh, she's We're amazing. Done she's fantastic. She's such an amazing singer. The way singer. she delivers that thing, have you been looking at my computer? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course I have. Yeah. But she... She gives Rebecca permission to do this because she, Rebecca realises that she's had a breakdown. She has a moment of clarity and goes, I walked away from an amazing job, an amazing pay. I'm crazy. I'm, cra I'm having a breakdown. And um, Paula, the voice of, of rom-com tropes, who has had this pushed into to her as the, the logic of a world that will make sense goes no you are not crazy you are a woman in love and all of these irrational things that you are doing are normal and healthy and cute because you are a woman in love um, and that is a, a message that that really sort of imprints on her because she's been given permission to be irrational and then yeah. that beca that becomes yeah. the the second um the second series theme tune um, her saying, yeah, I'm irrational, but I'm just in love, so you can't call me crazy because <laughs> women in love do crazy things, so I'm not crazy, I'm just in love, OK? <laughs> Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both, 
in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. She even said that she says, I did not move here because of Josh because that would be crazy and yes. I am not crazy. Yeah. And then the show's called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. What I thought was interesting about this is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, it's a great title for a yeah. show. It's, it's, and she's defending it in the, in the title song going, that's a very Texas term and it's a lovely argument. Crazy used to be the word you'd use in cheesy 1950s. The crazy gang. These guys yeah. are crazy. Mad magazine. Yeah. There was mm. a thing about being crazy that meant you were crazy. Looney, Looney Tunes. Yeah. That it was funny and fun and things. And what's great about this is it says Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, who is a side character in other sitcoms. Mm. And so we'll put that person front and centre, a bit like they did with Ever Decreasing Circles, what, the nosy neighbour, the, the, the interior neighbour. Let's make him front and centre the character. Let's make the annoying hotelier that the doctor meets mm. the lead character. We'll take a side character from another sitcom and make them the central character of this. And it says Crazy. And you go, well, what would be really interesting is to go, well, hang on, Crazy means mental health. Mm. So wouldn't it be great to do one of these things and give it four seasons of 42-minute episodes and say, is everyone all right? Yeah. Have mm. an enormous empathy for someone who is crazy. The crazy neighbour is a character. Yeah. But what, what's wrong with them? Are they OK? Yeah. And it's uh, this is something that I love about it. It's, it's so sympathetic. I don't believe that there's anything that you can't make a comedy about. But you have to be careful and you have to be sympathetic and you have to be sincere and this is so sympathetic and so sincere about a really really serious mm. and upsetting to I mean it, this is a, a comedy show where three seasons in you watch the protagonist attempt suicide mm. and then in the next episode it's got a really good comedy moment that doesn't laugh at her for attempting suicide but it has fun with her friends being really over the top protective <laughs> about her to the point that she's she's so drugged up, bless her heart, that she um, she's watching YouTube videos on the toilet and falls asleep on the toilet. And her friends realise that she's locked in the bathroom. And obviously, th yeah. this friend that they love has just attempted suicide using pills. Um, and she's locked in the bathroom. And they go, "What pills are there in the bathroom? Oh, are there razors in the bathroom? What are we going to do? What are we going to do, Rebecca? Rebecca? Rebecca?" Um, and they get completely wound up. She's just fallen asleep on the toilet <laughs> <laughs> and and they have a funny moment that... that's earned as well in the in the because we've opened up we've seen her with pills in her hand you've seen her mm. being desperate you've seen her on the edge of a breakdown pressured by expectations of family and work and things yellow rebecca i just checked the facebook you moved to california what are you doing I hope this isn't another stunt like your little suicide attempt in law school. You didn't even break your skin and you inconvenienced a lot of people. When comedies do the dramatic thing, when they kill a major character or do a suicide storyline, sometimes it's bolted on. Mm. This is a very, very modern sitcom in that from the beginning, the DNA contains this. This is about this subject. So when you introduce a really serious subject, you don't feel that, oh, I didn't know she'd do that. Mm. It's really been built to contain this. It, it makes you realise how far we've come in sitcom from story of the week, drop in, yeah. there might be a long arc about whether Sam's going to go out with Diane or whether yeah. David and Maddie and Moonlight are going to get together. That's a long arc. that You can now do in a sitcom a thing which is based on streaming audiences yeah. where you can get to a point where someone can, can be having a suicide attempt and you go, yeah, that was, that was always the story. Yeah. Which is really brave and very different and incredibly um, new and modern. <laughs> You do, you don't want to be crazy, and you don't, you do want to be crazy, to clarify, yes, no, I'm not crazy. 
mean, this this is a legendary. I think this is the lowest rated show ever to be recommissioned. Really? It's, did, oh, it's no. C- CBS made it, and it has just it genuinely tanked and tanked and oh, tanked. Geez. It had a fan base, a cult fan base. They kept recommissioning it, and the reason they kept recommissioning it is they did a deal with Netflix or someone, which meant they went, it'll find an audience. Yeah. yeah. And that is something that is only happening now, that you can do a long, clever, gentle arc like this with a show and know that that audience will be there. Mm. Because they'll find it. Yeah, and I was really happy with the fact that it um, that it was able to end. As like two of my favourite programmes at the moment are being able to end, and I'm like really pleased. You know, this and I Zombie, they get to <laughs> we get a conclusion because so many of the time the show will just stop and like, oh well, I was enjoying that. <laughs> I suppose I can make up my own ending, but um, they finally get to, they get to end properly, which it's is nice. nice. As well, because there is a fashion at the moment for I always moan about it, say so that thing. All television is aspiring to the status of sport. Open-ended seasons that you keep coming back next year to. I like stories. And I like stories finishing. They can be any length. I don't mind, but as long as I know you're heading towards a conclusion. there's There's a nice refreshing human thing of saying please I want to know say she's alright or that these people yeah. are going to be okay or that you as a creator are telling a story that you know where it's going to end yeah. this is one of the things I love about Over the Garden Wall because it's just a hundred minutes of <laughs> it's just it's one season it's one series of, of ten episodes and it's like right there you go you're going to watch that in the night because yeah. <laughs> it's really good you can binge it and finish it and <laughs> yeah, also yeah. Know, know as a human being that you will evolve to like stories and stories yeah. have a beginning and a middle What's fascinating about this is knowing that it had four series and it was allowed to do it, is it opens so well. Yeah. And there's a there's a thing in America where pilots are so good. Mm. This is a really good pilot, this yeah. episode. And it's because that's going to happen evolutionarily because America is a factory for making the first episodes of things. <laughs> yes. And you get a real famous... I was watching it going, oh, you bastards. <laughs> you are so good at introducing characters in two lines, doing that opening scene that tells you who everyone is. You're so good at this. Because everyone involved in this will have written 30 of these because of pilot season. It's an industrial process for saying, can you make a great first episode? And then the question is, well, what do you do with the rest of them? (laughs) Because you haven't written thousands of those, but this reeks of the skill of American television at making episode ones. We are just so honoured and, well, confused, frankly, to have an attorney of your calibre here. So Daryl Whitefeather, that's Mm. a really interesting name. Well, I'm what they call a full one-eighth. One-eighth Chippewa. Oh. Those are my people. Absolutely. And it, it absolutely, it sold itself to me um, before they brought it in, in, the, in the first bit. Before They don't have a title sequence in no. the first episode because the, the song West Covina is her, her introduction to it. So it, it introduces it by bringing in a really good song, a really yes. good musical song that sets the scene. It's the first musical, it's the, f- the first number of a musical, Where Are We? Here's a song about our town. <laughs> yeah, it's Belle running around. Yeah, the it's, be- it's absolutely <laughs> Belle. <laughs> good morning, sir. See the sparkle of the concrete ground. Hear the whoosh of the bustling town. What a feeling of love in my gut. I'm falling faster than the middle school's music program was cut. People dine at Shea Applebee. Ah. And the sky seems to smile at me. It's all new, but I have no fear. Accidentes. And also by coincidence, Josh just happens to be here. Um, and then it, it brings in, um, in its second musical number, it brings in the idea that, oh, we're not just, the songs aren't just going to be telling funny stories. There's going to be a satirical element to this show as well. And it's not going to be um, classic musicals as well. The second song is like a Beyonce type number. Is it the sexy yes, getting ready song? The sexy song. getting ready song. Oh, 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 oh. Hey, Josh, I want to look good for you tonight. So I'm gonna get in touch with my feminine side. Oh, it's a sexy getting ready song. The sexy getting ready song. Grabbing and plucking, brushing and rubbing. The sexy getting ready song. Which is constantly <laughs> undermining itself. It's the bit where she waxes her bum crack and blood hits the bar. Blood. 
<laughs> it's a wonderful song about the ugliness of the beauty industry yeah, and about yeah. how women are um, pressurized into such pain and discomfort and and uh, yeah, they're all using bound so into much of their time. Yeah, wasting so much time and and money on um, on making themselves gorgeous, and then there's this bit where she goes, "Let's see how the boys get ready," and Greg's just asleep in front of the TV. <laughs> the remote control uh, yeah. on his belly. <laughs> um, Let's see how the guys get ready. And there's this wonderful moment where um, something I love about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is that everybody gets to change. Yeah. Everybody in it, no matter how small the character, gets a moment where they get to better themselves. And even in that episode that's setting everything up, there's a rapper who turns up and just takes one look at the state (laughs) of all of the things that this woman is doing to herself to make herself look pretty and becomes a feminist instantly. Yes. (laughs) Hop on my dick with that tight little dress then Turn that ass around like you trying to impress then God, what? This is how you get ready? This is some, this is horrifying Like a scary movie or something Like some nasty ass patriarchal bullshit You know what? I gotta go apologize to some bitches I'm forever changed after what I just seen at the end of the show, yeah. he's doing the apologies and At saying, I'm sorry I made you wear that bikini of gold coins. Yeah, you know? it must have been really hot and uncomfortable for you. <laughs> Conducts hate. And he's got, the last thing you see is this, this handwritten list he's got called bitches to apologise to. <laughs> That's um that's the late nip, that's the late Nipsey Tussle, isn't it? Playing Is the it? rapper. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realise. Oh yeah. wow. But it's that as well that you know you're going to get the things that have been kicked open by animation that you can do with this show, which is about a heightened reality and musical theatre, and that she's got a fantasy world within her. It's a bit like Dream On and those kind of yeah. shows that said there can be two registers it works in, but you can end up with. With final callbacks that could be from The Simpsons. Yeah, that's yeah. a cartoon callback, mm-hmm. and the the one where <laughs> in the second episode where she's she's trying to find out what the what uh, Josh's uh, current girlfriend is into, and it's Vampire Weekend. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. oh, I'm into that too. And, she, and Paula goes, "What's that?" She goes, "I think it's a weekend where you get to be vampires." And obviously, at the end, the callback is they're on the Vampire yes. Weekend. Yeah. <laughs> See, a bunch I told of you. Sitting around, <laughs> we'll go water skiing at two a.m. And it's you, know, you can break reality one hundred percent because you can do a thing again. It's about mental illness. It could be done on one level. Mm. You could do a version of this which was about a girl having a breakdown. Yeah. But it's got within it a real lovely lightness that says we can obviously we can break into song. But that's not the only place we can go. We can also go and do Family Guy cutaway gags. Yes. Because we just want to make you laugh. Yeah, it's lovely, lovely flights of fancy in this world. I want to mention um, Getting By, which um, isn't part of uh, Rebecca's storyline so much. It's another character who gets to, uh, when they meet Rebecca, I it feels like it's the impetus of her changing her life that makes all of these characters who are stuck in a rut go, well, I can change my life as well. Mm. Um, and the character of, of Daryl, um, <laughs> who realises via Rebecca, because it's via a friend of Josh's, uh, wonderfully named White Josh, yeah. named, <laughs> who's called White Josh because he looks like Josh, but he's white, and his name is also Josh. <laughs> <laughs> that double down, ba-dum, yeah. ba-dum, ba-dum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He really does look like Josh. It's slightly Shatt. confusing for a bit. Yeah. Got, they've got another one. <laughs> they've got another Josh. Um, but via um, wanting to meet some of Rebecca's friends, um, he meets this guy called White White Josh, um, who is gay and um, who is attracted to Daryl. And um, Daryl has a moment of confusion over being quite touched by this and 
being surprised at how because Darren's got a wife and kids. And things, he's yeah. get, he's getting he's divorced. divorced. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. when you first meet him. Yeah, when you first meet him, he's getting divorced, and he's he's feeling un- very unloved and very sort of left out. And he's very much a family man. He's he's very over emotional. He's really into oversharing. Um, <laughs> He and bursts into tears almost immediately, doesn't he? Yes. When he, meets him. he admits <laughs> that he's one eighth Chippewa yes. and then says, People call me chief and it turns out they don't. He said, Did yeah. you get that started actually? <laughs> and then suddenly he's in tears. He's he's in tears because he's accidentally anti Semitic. Please stop saying Jew. <laughs> and then he starts crying because he was accidentally a bit racist. So Daryl is is surprised at how touched he is that that this this young, very attractive guy um is attracted to him um, and realises very quickly that he's into guys as well. And for all of the sort of how far we've come in terms of representing LGBT people, American television, I think television in general, is, is really finds it really hard to say bisexual. You have a lot of it. In, in Orange is the New Black, the, the main character is bisexual. She never says bisexual. Oh, I don't know. I don't know whether it's it's people feel that the word bisexual, because bisexuals are very sort of over-sexualised, generally that's the, the, um, the cliche is that they're very over-sexual, um, that, that makes you feel, oh, this person's, if we say bisexual, this person's going to be super slutty and is just going to sleep oh. with everyone. Um, and then you've got the song Getting By, which... If you're not, if you are bisexual, I'm, I'm attracted to men and women. Um, when you're used to that being presented as, oh, she's really confused. Oh, is she a lesbian? Oh, now she's straight. Oh, now she's a lesbian again. Mm. We don't know. She doesn't like. Um, she doesn't like labels, but she does know she's very <laughs> sexy. Um, when you're used to that, having a song where a middle-aged, quite dull man calls a meeting to come out as bisexual, which is brilliant. He That's looks the like joke. Ned Flanders. He's yeah, got he looks Ned like Ned Flanders. Flanders. He's, very, very, he's, he's the backbone of boring America. Yeah, yeah, where he comes out as bisexual and sings a song where he repeatedly says, I'm bisexual, I'm bisexual, <laughs> I'm bisexual. So if you ask me how I'm doing, here is my reply. I'm g- 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 getting by. Um, and it keeps cutting to him playing saxophone in front of a bisexual flag. <laughs> and the joke isn't that people are horrified that he's bisexual. The joke is that people are horrified he's called a meeting in work <laughs> to overshare about his sex life. It's in character. It's, it's a perfect absolutely character. in character. Yeah. And that is, that's actually a really groundbreaking moment. I think that's one of the most important moments in TV that we've had recently in, in a world where people are still really squeamish to say bisexual to have a character just say for three minutes <laughs> how bisexual he is. <laughs> and one more thing, I tell you what, being bi does not imply that you're a player or a slut, you're right like sex. Please make him stop. It's another thing where you're allowing these people who are characters to have agency and a voice and things. Yes. Uh, another, what's happened with box set telly with the streaming thing that the, the world where you can rely on not getting cancelled after two episodes that you can drop in and you can expect people to watch 18 episodes of this mm. not just one or two like you would have thought with old american sitcoms you drop in and drop yeah. out the idea is that you've got an audience here who are going to watch binge watch it i think you've got a thing where you can tell bigger stories with people yeah and you can allow them to blossom and be themselves mm. and all these people even in the title sequence where it labels them up the boss the best but yeah. they're all the characters from a standard american sitcom yeah. And then you allow them to have depth and agency and and time to have an episode to themselves or whatever, which is the classic box set thing. Most box set telly when it first came out, the big deal with it, that binge watching television, was to take things from films like a gangster movie and say, what would a gangster movie be like if it was forty hours long? Yeah. You'd really get to know them. Mm. You do a high school movie. What's the bully really like? You get to meet the, the archetypes and then see beyond them. And this one's called Crazy Ex Girlfriend. It's about a side character, and you say, what is it like? And you realise that most sitcoms secretly were about mental illness anyway. Mm. Basil Forty is about anger. Yeah. Blackadder is about narcissism. They've all got diagnosable things mm-hmm. that you want to be gentle and careful with. But we've always been sort of laughing at recognising those tropes in people. But this yeah. is quite an empathetic show to say, well, this guy's having a problem with his sexual identity. Let's be 
let's celebrate it, have fun with it, but yeah. also be gentle with it. Yeah. Well, this is this. What's so clever about the show is that actually, it's got you know what. There's this is the there's the beginnings of a conversation about this about comedy characters and then going but diagnosis and then you worry are we unsympathetic because we are laughing at the person with anger issues or we're laughing at the person who is you know potentially got ASD or whatever it is because you can do this you can diagnose characters mm. in comedies and it's a dangerous place to go but I get the feeling it's coming down the tracks at us and it might get here one day and what you've got in this show is one which has gone no 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 I'm going to take every one of these things head on I'm going to stare them straight in the eyes and I'm going to be very very fair about them while making you laugh and giving you a load of songs and great characters. It's a huge achievement, isn't it? It is a massive, massive achievement. Let's not forget... Oh, God, how well-written it is as well. Oh, that God. bit where um, Paula says, you're not crazy, and then she says... Okay, no, I'm no, crazy, all right, I'm crazy. This is going I'm down crazy and I'm irrational and I am everything not. my mother said. Okay, oh now stop it! Don't you talk about my friend like that ever again. Do you hear me? We're friends. Wow, you've absolutely punched that one, haven't you? Well done. That moment where Paula and and Rebecca sort of come together and you sort of realise what the show's going to be now. It's going to yeah. be them trying to win over Josh. And just the um, the way that you don't even properly hear it because um, Rebecca's singing her line over it, but Paula is listing all of these, what she believes to be great um, couples from rom-coms, and every single one of them is toxic. Bella and Edward, fuck. yeah. Bella and Edward, <laughs> Carrie and Big. These are horrible relationships. <laughs> West Covina, West Covina. Her journey is that she gets to realise that and she gets to um, she gets to heal from that and to drop this idea that that life is a rom-com that she has missed. Um, And she learns to reconnect with her husband and her her sons um, and but also while being that there's always a feeling that that Rebecca to Paula is the daughter she never had and that Paula to Rebecca is the mother that she wished she could have had yeah, from the beginning that yes. the mom, her mum is toxic and, and yeah. demanding and Paula is well her mum arrives as a fucking car horn doesn't she she doesn't even yeah. speak to begin with it's just this aggressive car yeah. horn in the background trying to break yeah. up this goodbye moment and then she's brought in again with a brilliant song which is so everybody's mum which is called Where's the Bathroom <laughs> the first, her, her real introduction is her opening the door and breaks into a song demanding to know where the bathroom is because she really needs the bathroom and you call this a bathroom there's not even any potpourri <laughs> talking about uh, Paula learning the cliches of romance and mm. learning to sort of transcend that and to go well you weren't denied this wonderful fantasy life, yeah. uh, which is a very common thing to believe that somewhere over the horizon there was that Mills and Boone lifestyle, yes. that, that that Richard Curtis rom-com lifestyle that, that somehow you were going to get. The whole show is, bearing in mind that it's, it's jeopardy and it's, it's stakes are all about romance. Yeah. The, big but the, stake, st- the big stake is absolutely romance. It's just romance. And it's, it's a really good... I said just romance. Romance being the most important thing. And it is, it's never demeaned. It is important for her, and this is her key to what she thinks is her happiness, that the fact that the language it chooses to do that in is the language of musicals is really clever. It says that the form will match it. And you could do this show really badly. Yeah. You could get the wrong musical collaborator. You could use those musical numbers wrongly. You could put them in the wrong place. There's an element in this that isn't in other sitcoms. And the real delight of this and a surprise of it is you are waiting for the songs. Yeah, you're not, they're the really funny bits. Those yeah. are the laugh out loud moments. Yeah. That is where you're going to get your gag, gag, gag. And yeah. it, so often when something goes to a song, you stop doing jokes or mm-hmm. the jokes are predictable. Or all the songs, the dance numbers, the choreography, the costumes, the, the subject matter they choose, all of them are off the chart. And there's 157 of them in they're this. They're brilliant songs. They're really good. And they've, they've hired... It's a different songwriter for the first episode, isn't it? But the rest of it's all Adam Schlesinger from mm. Fountains of Wayne, who's a god. I worship uh, yeah. his songwriting. He's brilliant. But they managed to put that sort of smart-ass New York songwriting into this yeah. in a sort of 
I don't know who else, Randy Newman, he kind of, it's just really, really clever songwriting. Mm. You never hit a point where someone bursts into song and you go, I'll tune out. Mm. It's the highlight of the show. They are yeah. treats. It could have just been bolted on and say, well, hey, we're the sitcom that has songs in it. Mm. And it's not. It's, it's intrinsic to the story they're telling, to the character, to the first, as you said, the first thing you see her doing, the yeah. highlight of her life. The secret all the way through was... You wanted to sing. I just want to sing. It's yeah, that. it's her happy place. And, and right towards the end, in like the penultimate episode, somebody goes, "You keep doing that. You keep just sort of drifting off." And then when we, and then you sort of strike a pose. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. What were you doing? Where what did you were go? You doing? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was just imagining a song and dance routine. Brilliant. <laughs> Because it's how I relax and how I get, how I sort of work out difficult problems. I sort of imagine myself singing and dancing it. And then it's sort of, that doesn't explain why there's so many times where she's not in the scene <laughs> and yeah. characters break into song and dance, but never mind. Wait, if, if, if it's how she sees the world, if it's the filter through which she sees yeah. the world, the world will be doing this. It, yeah, it's she's a the very, protagonist. So, yeah. yeah, it's a clever thing to do. fun and it's funny and the, it's got lovely characters and you want to follow it and the story's good and the stakes are clear and you, you're rooting for everybody is that it makes the craziness so normal that it's incredibly comforting to go the declarative saying we're all struggling yeah we're all broken the first thing you see her doing is cracking the opening of this, it's got a, it's a classic midlife crisis. She's younger than that. But it's, it's quarter a, life crisis. It's a quarter life crisis. It's a sort of Is that a thing? Yes, it's absolutely a thing. I, wow. I, I went mad when I was really? about 20. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 um, I went very strange um, <laughs> about 23 and then I went incredibly strange at about 29. Is it because you're settling into a job that you might be in forever or a lifestyle? Yeah. It's the first sign of the rut coming yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what at the beginning of this feels like. She's got everything that America and her mother said she should go and get. Yeah. And she's looked around and gone, oh. And that's where, I mean, what's it, the, the definition of depression is that you imagine there's another life that's better than this one that you're become obsessed by that, that you think this is you're in the wrong reality almost. Mm-hmm. That this is this is not what I was destined to do. Um, and it's so honest about that. And it's got, it's really frank, and the frankness combined with the colour and mm. the silliness. Normally, when you talk about things like this, it's hard to watch. Yeah. And they've made it effortless and brightly coloured and mm. fun and allowed you to laugh. Yeah. Which is quite brave, I think. It's brave and kind at the same time. Mm. Um, yes, yes. And difficult subject matter done in a comforting way is an amazing achievement. It's such difficult subject matter. And it is so comforting. The song, a, a massive musical number that they do in, in, in series, season four is, is a La La Land style chorus number called Antidepressants Are So Not A Big Deal, um, where they're, part of their big joke is that they're listing lots of antidepressants, but they're not allowed to use the, um, the brand names. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so they have to say fluoxetine. Fluoxetine, fluoxetine. Paroxetine, paroxetine. Citalopram, citalopram. Take one Sunday. They're all tap dancing and stuff, which is, it's, it's a love, and it's a lovely number to say to anybody who's who is worrying about taking antidepressants because there is still a I know I know somebody who who is on antidepressants, and when he told a friend about this, the friend went, ooh, as if you know he were admitting that. He'd given up or something. It's like no, no, no. If you've got a yeah, if you've got a headache, you take aspirin. Mm. If this is the same, it's just to stop you hurting. And sometimes you've got a cold. Yeah. Sometimes you need to take some flu medication. Yeah, yeah. It's just. And and the, the song is saying it like that. First of all, it's saying pretty much everyone's on, on um, antidepressants <laughs> these days. So what are we all so upset about? Yeah, <laughs> it's a normalising thing, which is yeah. quite good. So there's loads of people who come up to her in this song. But honey, you're not special because you're sad. Not special. No, you're not. The butcher, the baker, the grocery clerk—they're all on twenty milligrams or so. The movers, the shakers, the happy homemaker. Surprised how many of them know antidepressants are so not a big deal. And loads of different people that she didn't know were on antidepressants come up to her and say, How oh, antidepressants too? And it's not a big deal. Um, and that is 
a, a lovely, another lovely, like getting by is another lovely moment where they're saying something that is very true and very important in our lives in the 21st century, but that TV won't say usually. Yeah. And it will say it and it'll get it out and it'll get it out in a funny way. And you're like, yeah, that is true. Yeah. And it's funny. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. <laughs> There's an honesty to this. And it's, it's funny so because honest, it's a fantasy. Yeah. It's, got, it's built out of fantasy, but it's about honesty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. But, but fantasy can reveal truth as well as any other form can do it, can't it? You know, that's but, worth acknowledging. There's a brilliant... Emily Nussbaum wrote a, a piece for the New Yorker, I think, uh, marking the end of the series. And she said something so beautiful. I'm just going to quote it. She says, Call me corny, but there's something jazz hands lovely to what this deceptively small show accomplished while expanding the boundaries of television. It offered its most devoted fans something to sing along with together in the darkness. Yeah. Mm, good and writing. I wow. nearly, that, I nearly cried during that. Yeah. I, well, uh, the song that makes me cry is You Ruined Everything. Um, because that is, I've had those moments where you you hate yourself and you're angry at yourself for being so self-absorbed as to hate yourself. Mm. Um, and she is absolutely in a spiral. And it ends up with this of, uh, string of expletives against herself, which are funny because she she forgets she she calls herself poopy at one moment. <laughs> she's just at the top of her head thinking of really ridiculous names to call herself, and then being angry that she called herself the names <laughs> because she should be thinking about other people. And that song that song can make me cry if I'm in a low place because it it can. It it really speaks of the spiral that you can get into sometimes of sort of self loathing, but you also hate yourself for loathing yourself. It's yeah. dreadful. Trapped <laughs> in that, that loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What an amazing thing to achieve yeah. in a in a show that's just supposed to have dance numbers in it where people get hoisted into the sky in a pretzel. What? <laughs> <laughs> Never seen a pretzel this big. Yeah. Um, yeah, Aileen Brosh McKenna, who was the co creator of the show said mental health should be a taken-for-granted part of our hygiene. Well said. It's like cleaning your teeth. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. You need to run audits on how you're doing inside your own head every now and then, don't you? Hands up who's had mental health issues in this room. Three out of three. There you go. See? (laughs) Yes, it's normal. To to destigmatise that in a show like this, to be this funny and this charming, and Mm. to to still do a basic, good old-fashioned American romantic sitcom... At the same time as this, it's an incredible achievement. Yeah, I love everybody trial. in that show. <laughs> I just, I really cared about them, and and what was really nice about the ending was it, it wasn't it wasn't about her. It was about the ensemble that you'd come to love, and everybody, as I, as I said before, everybody who you meet is, is broken when you meet them, and are inspired by her making choices to better herself uh, they then decide to attempt to better themselves and they all manage it in some way they all manage to grow and they all end up in a much happier place than they were when they started out um and i care so much about about the whole ensemble mm. thank goodness they, they went with it and, and had the courage to do yeah. a full story and finish it because I suppose the thing you want to find out when you're watching a program where you're worried about people yeah. is that they're going to be okay yeah what a wonderful thing. Thank you so much for being crazy ex-girlfriend, Gabby. You're it's welcome. Really Thanks, Gabby. To talk about. 